Communicating facts about science well is an art, especially if you're trying to reach an audience outside your area of expertise. A statistician in Norway is convinced that how you say something is just as important as what you say when it comes to science communication. And that's a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Joe Roisland. He's a professor of medical statistics at the University of Stavanger and has been involved in numerous research projects in medicine and health. As a medical statistician, he's worked to improve quantitative research methodologies in a number of fields. In 2011, he also helped create and hosted a TV series about mathematics, stats, and numbers for a general audience in Norway. Roisland's since written and hosted multiple science TV series and short films for national and international audiences, including being the first ever Norwegian host on Discovery Channel. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Joe, I, you know, I'm mad at you. You have so many many cool things that you're doing. I hardly knew where to start. <laughs> I, I I guess I, I thought the, the way that I'd, I'd get us to begin our conversation is to let you talk a little bit about some of the organizing principles. And and you have this, this organizing principle tank, T-E-N-K. And and I was wondering if if perhaps maybe we could start with just telling us a little bit about what the what does that mean in terms of science communication to you? You know, you know, I, I've been doing science communication for several years, and I'm a statistician, so I'm concerned with both things. So I was sitting there in spring 2020 when the pandemic hit, and I was watching TV. Everyone was watching TV, and they were talking about pandemics and viruses and everything. And the uh, public health agencies were talking and talking, and I was like, huh. Is this really good science communication? Do people get what they're saying? So we apply for funding for a huge research project on how do you communicate science effectively when there's risk or something at stake. And one of the things that we did was that we went through everything that has been published scientifically about effective science communication. And when we sort of pulled all of that together, there were four things stood out for every type of communication that actually succeeded in reaching an audience. Well, the first one of them was T for trust. I mean, if you don't have trust, well, people won't listen to you. So that's a given, that's fair enough. And then we are humans and humans have emotions. And if you don't appeal to human emotion, well, people won't listen to you, they won't bother and they won't even remember because Emotions, I mean, they're running through your body all the time. And when you have like a strong emotion, it's basically your, your body, it's your brain telling you this is important. Remember this. It's like putting a post-it sticker inside your brain. So the E for emotion is important. And then N for narratives. People are suckers for stories. <laughs> and it's weird though, because... Well, it turns out when people do a lot of experiments, and we've done that ourselves, lots of experiments, we, uh, we have people in laboratories, we do experiments, and people say they like facts, and they learn a lot from facts, and they get motivated for facts, they trust facts, blah, 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 facts, 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 and then they stand up, and they get out of the studio, and then they don't choose facts, they choose stories, so the end for narratives is incredibly important. 
and then the K for creativity. The brain has a built-in mechanism that if you expose it for something that it, uh, it has heard it before, seen it before, but it's not important. I mean, it's like the fan in your office, right? You hear it when you enter the room, but eventually it doesn't eat you. You can't eat it. You can't have sex with it. Nothing's going to happen. So you forget about it. It means you have to be creative. So T-E-N-K. And the thing is that in Norwegian, T-E-N-K spells the word. Mm. So for Norwegian scientists that end up with that acronym, it's well, like beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> I, w- I have a question about the T in that trust, because in the yeah. United States, there has been this real kind of pushback against trusting scientific fact. We saw it pre-COVID, and then during COVID, it just sort of seemed like it just really exploded. And I wonder how... What suggestions do you have for statisticians or scientists or other researchers who are trying to figure out how to communicate the work they're doing, how they might build trust with an audience? Like, how did they go about doing that in an environment where it might be a little hostile? Yeah, the thing is that for many, many years, we, the scientists, we who know everything, we who have the knowledge, we had trust. People trusted in us. So we haven't really been talking about, are we trustworthy, Uh, right? So we always say, oh, no, people don't trust scientists. And then we say that it's their fault. It's the people's fault. But we never look ourselves in the mirror and think, huh, is there anything I could be doing differently? When, When I look at myself, do I see someone who's trustworthy? But we think that because we our first names are doctors and professors and blah, 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 we can just go on and on. We have to think carefully. Are we trustworthy? Why should people trust us? And it's been uh, a lot of research has goes in, gone into this and what builds trust. It, well, if you're open, if you invite people in, if you discuss with them, if you show them that you care. I mean, all these human things that we're doing when we talk to one another, like right now, we're talking to one another. I'm having a cup of coffee. Maybe you're having a drink, a glass of water or something. And we're chatting. Yeah. Now we're building trust with one another. Do we do that with our audience as scientists? I don't think so. We just keep talking because we are the scientists and we know it does not build trust. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, as part of this communication of some of these concepts, do you pilot test kind of the effectiveness of this? How do you how do you do some of the study of this? I, I noticed with, I, I, in particular, with your effort on the, the covcom.org effort really was fascinating to me. And I thought it's, uh, you know, really incredibly important. I mean, the idea of establishing a key scientific concept, looking at the the artistic choices you'd make, and then the conducting of the experiments. And that's, mm-hmm. so I'm, maybe I'm starting backwards in terms of this process, <laughs> but the idea that somehow you evaluate how well your communication works. Could, could you maybe take us through that process with an illustration? <laughs> you know, um, one of the things that we did in the Covcom project, where we wanted to uh, try to figure out, is there an evidence base for science communication? I mean, experience can bring you far, but still, medical research is packed with experience not matching the evidence. So we're like, is this like this for, for communicating science as well? And <laughs> it's funny, I've been doing this for more than a decade and on TV and all of that. We're, we had a lot of success. But we're like, huh, why are we successful? Why is this really working? You know, I'm a mathematician at heart. I'm really curious about, can you take something big and complex and turn it down to something small and easy, understandable? 
So when I ventured into researching science communication, it turns out, of course, I was not the first in the world. Somebody had done it before. <laughs> and there are models that does this. And there's something called the mental model for science communication, okay. which basically says, one, figure out what is it that you want to say. And I'm, when I talk to scientists, very often they don't know what they want to say. <laughs> they want to talk about what they know. But when you talk to people who work in advertising, communication agencies, they're incredibly concerned with what is the exact thing that you want to say? Because you cannot say it well unless you know what it is. So trying to figure out exactly what it is is really, really important. Now, the second thing is, so I want to say this thing. That's number one. Number two, who do I want to say it to? Mm-hmm. If I'm talking to other academics, well, I can use advanced words and blah, 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 all the scientist stuff. If I'm talking to my kids, they're nine and 11 years old, I have to use completely different words trying to explain what daddy does at work, right? And then you have all the people in between. Are they grown-ups or are they teenagers? Do they love science? Do they hate science? Do they love statistics? Do they pass or fail statistics class? Are they nurses, engineers, working in a store? Are they hairdressers? All of that comes into play. And try to figure out exactly who it is. How can you find great metaphors if you don't know who they are? So that's number two. And then number three, you have to create the communication. And we, the scientists, we tend to like, okay, so then I just write something about the stuff that I know and then you read it (laughs) out loud, right? That's not creating communication. When you talk to ad agencies, they're like, so is it a podcast? Is it a video? Is it social media? Or maybe you should uh, give a public lecture. Is it a poster of the subway? Going through all of that, I mean, I've done a lot of TV series on national TV, but national TV, I mean, that's for grownups, right? The kids are on social media. So if I'm trying to reach out to kids and I'm on TV, well, it doesn't matter if there's 500,000 people watching. It's the wrong 500,000 people. Hmm. And then eventually, did it work? Hmm. And very often as scientists were like, oh, so I, I, I was on the radio and I talked about my science checking all the boxes, reporting to the head of the department, did it. But did people get it? Did they listen? Did it change anything? Very rarely we check that. So in our CovCom project, that was kind of one of the things that we wanted to see. Does it matter if you choose to create a video about the pandemic where you just have an expert standing there, you know, in a white lab coat, just saying something for 60 seconds? Or maybe you could uh, you know, create like a, a weird stunt where you're peeing in a bathtub uh, or something like that. You won't, say, you won't be able to say as much, but maybe it will stick better. Mm-hmm. Or you could do, do some cool, you know, classic uh, TV, Nat Geo, Discovery Channel explanation where you have balloons and stuff going on like that. Or you can make something really, really artistic that the teens would love. So we created four different videos And then we show them to thousands and thousands of people and see what motivated them. What did they learn the most from? We found weird stuff like questionnaires about intention to forward, right? Would you forward this to your friends or would you not? And the results were crystal clear though. There's something works better than other things. And on a mass scale, which I'm interested in, if, if there's something that works better for a large group than something else, then we should do the thing that actually works. Sure. And that testing, oh man, it takes forever, right? <laughs> oh. 
You know, uh, so now I, I'd like to, can you step through that with an example now? I, I love the framing here. So all of a sudden I found myself thinking about, well, like exponential growth. You know, why are, why are some of these these efforts that, that people are talking about with doubling times or with, you know, how fast this the pandemic is increasing? Why, why are some of these interventions going to work? We've, we've talked to previous guests about, about some of the things that they did with simulations to try to illustrate kind of the movement of this. Harry Stevens did a, a really lovely piece that was in the, the Washington Post. So, so could you talk through kind of the four part of what you wanted to say you know, sort of who you were targeting, and then what what communication was really, you know, really seemed to nail it. One of the things that was really hard for people to get during the pandemic was how does the virus transmit? Hmm. I mean, is it droplets or is it by touching something or is it just floating around in the air, right? And then we were like, okay, so if this is a thing that's difficult to communicate, let's figure out how should we do it? So then we hired a, um, a science communication video production company, I mean, professional science communicators. And we were sitting there in the room while they were bouncing ideas. And they were like, oh, yeah, maybe we could uh, uh, could shoot something. It's always cool to shoot something because that would be like spitting. So we could shoot something. Oh, maybe we could ha like have a train crash. That's bigger. That's cooler. Oh, maybe if we have Miley Cyrus on the train singing <laughs> a song, that would be cool. Oh, no, maybe that's too big. What if we do it smaller? What if we uh, use pee? I mean, if you pee in a pool, I mean, it will spread out, right? So maybe peeing would be cool. And we can film it from above, right? <laughs> so they were bouncing off all of these ideas. And then we were like, I want one video that's uh, traditional. Okay. One that uh, tries to explain the best it can, one that has the potential to go viral, and one that's everything. Can it be done? Mm -hmm. And then they sat down and then they, we wrote a script, uh, a 60 second script where you have the traditional expert just reading up something with a lab coat, explaining how transmission works. And then we had a second video where we did all the fun things that we've been doing on TV, where we had balloons that would uh, kind of mimic the virus spreading and you will uh, see different you know graphical representations of how it would spread large particles small particles and then we had a third video where we actually did that we we took a, a bathtub and we had someone pee in that <laughs> and we asked people would you step into that bathtub and they were like no way <laughs> and then we uh, showed them an elevator and said would you step into the elevator course everyone was sipping to the elevator and then we told them yeah but there was someone with covid was actually just in here but you can't see it so how <laughs> and then the final one we created a rather artistic version where we had you know classic soft voiceover cool music with people walking around and touching things and sharing coke and we were talking about how viruses spread so we created four different videos and then we tested these on thousands of people and we know their background, I mean, how old they are, their gender, things like that. And uh, screen them and so how how did the various movies work? What films did they learn most from? Uh, which one would they forward, blah, blah, blah. And when the results came in and we started doing the statistical analysis, it turned out that the more artistic things didn't work as well as we had planned. Yeah. No. And on the other hand, uh, the scientists just standing there 
lecturing didn't work at all. So the far end kind of didn't work, but the middle part where you try to explain, but using graphical visual tools with a voiceover is uh, more emotional, something in that area tends to work better. better. So for our next project, we'll try to figure out, okay, if we change the tone of voice, if we try different presenters, I mean, in Norway, we use uh, female presenters because, I mean, it's Scandinavia, of course. Maybe that wouldn't fly as well in the US or Germany. I don't know. And for large scale communication, we need to figure out those things as well. Yeah. And also it turns out if people are too young, when you talk about science, it doesn't work either. Mm. Because it has to, scientists are older and wiser, right? <laughs> <laughs> so there's all of these uh, factors that come into play. And I was like, I mean, can we even do experiments like this on, on communication? Does mm. it even make sense? So I come from natural sciences. And in, in natural sciences, you can sort of pull everything uh, apart. You can optimize for this and optimize for that. And you glue it together and it works. That's why they're landing on Mars on the first try. But you can't optimize for the best script, the best host, the best background, the best photographer individually and just glue it together and then it will be great. No, there's an interaction here and ah, how does that come into play? I'm really curious about trying to sort of dive further into that. You're listening to Stats and Stories and today we're talking with the University of Stavanger's Joe Roisland about science communication. You talked about how you have done TV, and I am a broadcast journalist by training, and I didn't want to do TV. I did radio instead. And so I'm curious how you transitioned, like why you made that move, why you decided that doing science communication in this big, very visible public way was something you wanted to pursue. And maybe if you could talk a little bit about what you learned working on these TV projects as you sort of think about how to improve science communication. You know, the funny thing is I didn't choose it. Ah. I <laughs> it shows me. Ah. <laughs> you know what happened was I uh, I did my PhD in uh, geostatistics and petroleum engineering. I'm from Norway, right? And then it turns out the rocks are just lying there. Nothing happens. <laughs> so I, I had to change jobs. Uh, and my first job was as a statistician at a research hospital. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to solve everything. You just take my maths and stats and figure everything out. And then it turned out that what... It was kind of complicated. Turns out the human body is complicated. And also the people that I was working with, you know, medical doctors, nurses, they weren't really interested in statistics at all. So I was like, huh, how can I get them to understand statistics? I mean, these are quantitative research projects. They don't want to listen. They don't get it. If I talk about equations and numbers, you see their eyes just glass out and they won't listen. So I started talking about statistics and new and creative ways and everyone I met, I was like, blah, 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 statistics, creative, new ways. How can we do this? So I was um, at, at this after party, a Saturday night, and I was sitting there talking to a guy, you know, you can hear me. I'm, I'm, I'm talking all the time. I'm always <laughs> like this. And I was just going on and we were emptying a bottle of whiskey and then another. And then it turned out that he was working in a television production company. So they called me up the day after and said, we want to create a TV series about maths and stats, and we want it to be hugely successful. Mm. How do we do that? <laughs> I was like, huh, I didn't have a TV at the time. I hadn't owned a television set for <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> and I was like, this is a perfect job for me. <laughs> <And> so, 
<laughs> I took some time off from uh, from research and started working with television. And since I didn't know anything about it, I was listening, I was watching, I was paying attention. What are they doing? You know, the scientists just venturing into, into a new field. And then you realize that these people, they're doing a lot of the same things, right? They're, they have some tricks, something up their sleeve. And what happened also was when we created this first TV series called Cipher Digits, it was hugely successful. It was uh, seen by, I mean, we had like 40% of all TV viewers watching. Wow. That it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, as a statistician, not having a TV and all of a sudden you walk down the streets and people will have autographs. You have to sign people's chests and you have to <laughs> leave the, the bar 10 p.m. because everyone will talk to you. I've been to all the cool TV shows and all. And you realize the, the power of moving images. It is incredibly powerful. So that's sort of, uh, <laughs> I was pulled into it and I never left because it's hard. I mean, and if you fail, you fail spectacularly. It's pretty fun. Everyone will write about it in the papers and will talk about it on the radio that you failed. But if you succeed, there's there are few things that can beat moving images. You know, as, I, as, as I'm thinking about you doing this show, I, I was wondering, what was the hardest concept you had to try to communicate on the, your TV series, and and oh, how that's did you a great question. No, you know what? Uh, I I wanted to be a pop star when I was younger. Clearly, didn't happen. Because <laughs> here I'm in a podcast talking I, about I statistics. Know, you've got forty percent of the viewing market. I think you may have achieved your pop star status. <laughs> no, that's um, working uh, with. Uh, the director, he had created a lot of uh, music videos for international pop stars. So he oh. was good at making things come alive. And we had we went to New York to shoot something one day, and we had this huge fight because he said, "Well, we're this is moving images. This is television. We have to have cool stuff that's moving across the screen. If not, we should do a podcast, right? If it's just audio, it's a podcast. We have to see something." Mm -hmm. And I was going, you know. Uh, but mathematics is very abstract and it's in your head and intellectual and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, well, if you can't get it out of your head and onto the screen, why are we here? Right? Oh, okay. And, and he's right. So I was like, I took all the creativity I had in my youth trying to be a pop star and figuring out how can we do this? And one of the things that I'm really concerned with is, uh, is randomness. I mean, I, I'm a statistician. Randomness and chance events rules our lives to much greater extent than, than we'd like to think. And eventually, having been working with you know nurses and medical doctors uh, at university and trying to teach them statistics, I ended up with uh, using rice. So I have a handful of rice, and I throw it onto the floor, and everyone now knows that the rice grains will be spread randomly on the floor. I mean, you saw me throw the rice. But then again, if you look closely, there will be patterns. There will be rice grains lumped together. There'll be rice grains on a straight line. There will be rice grains making out the first letter of your first name. <gasps> but it's still just chance events. So we were making the TV series. I said, we have to talk about randomness. I mean, it's an incredibly important concept in probability theory, mathematics everywhere. And I told the story about the rice grains and they were like, ah, well, we get it in a way. And it's explanatory. 
And then the director came in and he was like, there's no way I'm filming a floor with rice. <laughs> I'm like, no, I kind of get it. It's not very cool. But we were like, but, but you still get the general idea. So we're like, can we make it bigger? Like everything's cooler when it's bigger. So we looked across the room and in one corner, we had some uh, plastic boxes with a thousand yellow rubber ducks that we bought online. I mean, you never know when you might need a thousand yellow rubber ducks, right? right? <laughs> we're like, they're kind of cool, aren't they? So the director, he filled his trunk with yellow rubber ducks, uh, picked up a friend of his, and she's a cinematographer, and they drove around downtown Oslo, the capital of Norway, and thinking, huh, from where could we dump <laughs> yellow rubber ducks to simulate rice grains? And we ended up in an outdoor pool. It was January, freezing cold, and we set up the cameras, and then I basically just threw a thousand yellow rubber ducks onto the pool in slow motion, and now, 10 years later on, people still come up to me on the street and like, ha, huh, I remember those yellow rubber ducks, man. It clearly explained randomness. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm going to have to, when we're done talking, go and try to find this video. Because I it makes me think of there, there was that very famous ad campaign where people dumped bouncing balls down one of the hills in San Francisco. And that's kind of like the visual I was getting. So now I have to see how these ducks compare. Yeah, the fun thing is that several of the things that we did on that TV show in Norway, it eventually spread. We see a lot of people internationally have copied it yeah. in various versions that we did. And it's kind of cool when you have this, this little idea and you're sitting there in two IKEA sofas and you're trying to figure <laughs> out what to do with it. And then it grows and grows. And it, if you find a good explanation of something, it has its own life. You know, it starts living and then you can spread it way beyond your own voice. So that's kind of what I'm looking for, ideas that explain something complicated and have their own life. You know, we've we've had guests before that have talked about the that statistics are simply plot elements. Yeah. Let's talk about that as and and that that framing has kind of changed my, you know, my orientation in many ways. I I in looking at at the the various groups that have been involved in the work that you do, that there's public health where you're thinking about learning and behavior change as being an outcome. Mm -hmm. There's risk communication where you talk about trust and credibility as being critical aspects of that. There's media components, which is catchiness and attention and reach. There, so you have all of these, the these disparate, not disparate, but 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 potentially very different backgrounds of people that that are involved in this. Can can you talk a little bit about the team that you work with, and and then sort of complementing that, how would someone prepare to to be on such a team? You know, what What are you going to tell the, the journalist who wants to communicate a quantitative story better or the statisticians who want to pre prepare to develop their presentations in more impactful ways? What are some of the words of wisdom you might give us? <laughs> you know, actually, one of the research projects that we did was we talked to a lot of people involved with communicating during the pandemic, everything from public health scientists to, you know, professional communicators. And we're like, so what are your strategies? What do you focus on? All of that. And it was really fun to see that the results uh, sort of divided the group into two different portions. One part were people who came from science and they were incredibly concerned with the truth. The facts had to be right. So to them, communication was about getting the facts right and then you tell the facts. It's a very short and very linear process. 
And then you talk to the professional communicators. They're also concerned with facts, but they're like facts. That's uh, step one. That's the baseline. Now the communication work starts, right? The creativity, finding ways to, uh, you know, uh, at, at get people interested, grabbing on, holding on, something that stands out, appeals to your emotions. How do we do all of that? And then <laughs> we actually went through some uh, creative communication sessions to see how it all panned out and started to compare them through observation. And when you say, how do you put teams of those different types of people together? It turns out that that's actually one of the hardest thing in making effective communication. Because you have one group that looks at, uh, views communication as a linear process. You do this and that, and then this thing happened and this thing happened, and then we're done. And then you have one group where you bounce up every single idea and you can twist and turn up to the very end where chaos seems to be what's going on. We even call it that, creative chaos. But these are the people who create Hollywood movies, right? They do pop music, they do commercial ads. So they create final products that are immensely popular. So it's not chaotic, but it's kind of like, and we started plotting it graphically. It was kind of like viewing a linear regression, but uh, with the same slope, but very different variation parameters. Yeah. You have like, for some of them, it's just A, B, C, D, E. For the others, it's just mayhem, but you end up in the same place. So I've actually been giving a lot of talks to scientists and public health communicators about this is the struggle. How do we get these two different groups to actually communicate? And the thing is, once I've said it, there are two different groups, one linear and one creative chaos, then they're like, oh, um, is it like that? Well, then I can just change the way I work. Yeah. If I know that they are chaotic, well, well, then I know. Then I won't be, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, freaking out as much. So um, I'd say my background from doing advertising and stuff like that, the thing that we called, uh, you know, leading creative people is very different. And I, if I didn't have that, I don't think I could you know, working those projects at all. It, it seems that one aspect of what I'm hearing you say is, is that, that there's some value in just this, this contamination of thinking and process that, that yeah. if you're embedded with the other, with kind of the other work styles, that that ultimately will, will enhance your work style or, yeah. or, or open up to you kind of these alternatives. Yeah. There's something about working together with different groups. As long as you respect one another, you will end up with something that's both true the facts are right, but it will also be creative and reach inside people's minds. And that's where you want to be, right? Yeah. John, have you felt like it's been creative chaos? I, 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 I was going to say, that, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think what it says, though, is I, I, I know that the way that I think about communication has changed as a consequence of our uh, working with Rosemary and mm. with Richard before her as well, that that I think about how how ideas are packaged. You know, I'm my my background is biostatistics, so I yeah. and risk risk estimation and risk assessment, which is the, you know and, and really ultimately success is if you influence you know contaminants or hazards are being evaluated or being you know considered, but you know that if you don't get that message across, you get very simple decisions, and and I think that 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 interacting with you in journalism has has led me to to think a lot more carefully 
about what's the real story. You know, not 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 burying the lead in terms of the work that's being done. I, I, let me turn it back. I mean, has it affected you as well? Yeah, I mean, I think I. <laughs> how can I? I don't know if I can put it into words, but I definitely feel like I approach things with. Uh, slower than I did in the past. Like as a journalist, like everything is fast, fast, fast. And I feel like I definitely have slowed down in a good way. Joe, did you? Yeah, it was really funny when, it, uh, when you say you come from journalism, because I was always, you know, I didn't like journalists because they were making things so simple and they always had <laughs> conflicts and blah, blah, blah. And then I started working with journalists and then you realize that the thing that they're doing is actually working. Yeah. Yeah. And once when I when I had created this uh, think uh, model, trust, human emotions, narratives and creativity, and I told it to a friend of mine, she's a journalist, and she was like, ah, so that's why journalism works. Yeah, because oh. that's what journalists do. They try to have trust by you being open and telling what they're doing. They're appealing to human emotions by always having some story that, you know, is emotional. They tell the stories. And then they are always looking for new stories, something that you haven't seen before. So they're doing all of this. That's why they win. And we, the scientists, we just can't get it right. Well, you know, I think that that from a journalist perspective, I begin to appreciate that what you do is is being is doing work under a serious constraint. Right. And it's a constraint of time. It's a constraint of space to the amount of space you have to tell that story. And, and all of a sudden I thought. A lot of the work that we do is is working under constraints, but just a mm -hmm. different way of framing them. And I I, I found that to be it, it kind of gave me a lot more patience, kind of with the way that I see things packaged and presented, and understanding of why it was done that way. Yeah, and you guys, you see that by working together, the two of you, both your mindsets have changed, and you both both feel more competent in doing this. Oh, absolutely. So we just need to find more, you know, places and spaces where these different cultures can meet and learn from one another. Well, Joe, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. Joe, this has been great. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu, or check us out at statsandstories.net, and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.